Well, this morning we come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. And uh, I must admit that as I've been reading through 1 Timothy over and over again, I try and read through several times a week. And uh, I've really been looking forward to these few verses that we're approaching in chapter 4, which is one of my all-time favorite passages. And uh, one of the the problems I have when I'm preparing my sermons is I oftentimes have more material than uh, I have time to say. And so I have to decide what I'm not going to say. And one of the things I do is on Sunday morning, I usually get up real early and I sit down and kind of go through my sermon one last time and pray and ask God to show me anything that needs to be fixed or whatever. And uh, this morning I was going through and I looked and I I didn't have as many notes as I thought. And I thought to myself, well, man, I, I can add on to this baby. So, I just started just cranking and putting some more material in there. And then it started getting a little bit big. And then when I went back to review it one more time, I realized that it went from page 7 back to page 1 again. And then I realized I had about an hour and a half worth. (laughs) And I only had a little bit of time. So, if you think that I'm speaking quickly... It's probably because I am. The birth pangs of the Reformation started in 1388. There was a man named John Wycliffe, and we've probably heard of you know, Wycliffe commentaries or Wycliffe this or Wycliffe that. Well, they all come from this man, John Wycliffe, who was a brilliant Catholic theologian. And John Wycliffe um, was the first person who attempted and uh, actually succeeded, succeeded, yeah, succeeded in translating the Bible into English, the whole thing. You see, before that time, the Bible was usually kept in Hebrew or Greek or Latin, which was kind of the language of the scholars. And the common people in the the Roman Catholic Church were not allowed to read the Bible. As a matter of fact, even in the Mass, the Mass was kept in Latin so the people wouldn't know what the Bible said. And John Wycliffe had this great desire, this burning passion to see the Bible translated into English so that the common people could understand what the Word of God said. He was, he was ever increasingly being troubled with the Roman Catholic Church. Wycliffe was enraged with the Roman Catholic Church's quest for money. He rejected the doctrine of indulgences, which basically said you could purchase remissions of your sins or or purchase the ability to sin. He was also bothered with the doctrine of transubstantiation, which said that during the Mass or communion, that the elements were actually turned into the literal body and blood of Christ, who was kind of crucified all over again every Mass. He publicly criticized the popes, yes, the popes plural, because Urban VI and Clement VII were two men, each claiming to be pope, each trying to excommunicate each other, and each each putting people to death in their lust for the position and power of being pope. 
Wycliffe said, how dare he make the token of Christ on the cross, which is the token of peace, mercy, and charity, a banner to lead us to slay Christian men for the love of two false priests, end quote. He questioned whether or not these two fighting popes were even saved. The greatest conviction, though, he had is that the people had to get God's word in their hand. He knew that the church had become so powerful and so corrupt that there would be no way to undermine its grip on people unless people could look at the Bible themselves and see what the word of God said and then they could overthrow this monster that the Catholic church had grown into. Philip Schaff, a historian, describes the Roman Catholic Church's view on letting people read their own Bible with these words, that the church was concerned about the effect of the Bible reading upon uneducated laity. The Bible was best left to the eyes of educated clergy, since salvation was mediated through the teachings of the church and the clergy-led sacraments, end quote. The Catholic Church argued against Wycliffe's Bible translation, saying, quote, By this translation, the scriptures have become vulgar. They are more available to lay people and even to women who can read. Then they were to learn scholars who have high intelligence. So the pearl of the gospel is scattered and trodden underfoot by swine, end quote. Wycliffe wanted the swine to have their own copy of the Bible, the less intelligent. And because of this, he labored diligently translating the entire Bible into English. And even though the Roman Catholic Church did everything they could to try and burn and destroy every copy that was printed, 200 copies were still preserved and we have them today. The Wycliffe Bible was the seed of the Reformation and caused the Roman Catholic Church so much misery that 43 years after Wycliffe died, they dug up his remains, burned them, and threw the ashes in the river. Because once the Word of God got into the hands of the people, people said, wait a second, the Bible doesn't teach that. Where does the Bible teach that? You see, the Catholic Church had formed many doctrines apart from the scriptures. And so, once the scriptures got into the hands of the people, the Reformation had begun. Now, the questions that became so impertinent would, why did the Catholic Church want to keep the Bible out of the hands of the people? Why did they perform the Mass in Latin? Why did they put to death people caught reading the scriptures? The answers to these questions are found in the text before us, a text which is the hill on which the Reformation was fought. We often think the Reformation began when people like Martin Luther or John Calvin uh, preached the doctrines of sola gratia by grace alone or or, uh, sola fide by faith alone. But really, the foundational doctrine was sola scriptura, by the scriptures alone. Before men could fight for the truth, they needed to know where the truth was to be found. Was absolute truth to be found in the church? 
Was absolute truth to be found in the sayings of the Pope? Was absolute truth to be found in the traditions that men had passed down through various writings? Or was it to be found in the Word of God alone? And this, people, was the issue that spawned the Reformation. And men like John Wycliffe believed the Bible, and the Bible alone was the Word of God, and the church needed to submit itself to the Word of God, not the Word of God submitting itself to the church. And so that doctrine, the doctrine of sola scriptura, was the anvil on which the thoughts and practices and doctrines of the church were then beginning to be hammered out and many were found to be false metals. So this morning we approach this key text. It is not just a key text because it's the key text of 1 Timothy. It's the key text really of all the Bible. It's the key text of this doctrine of sola scriptura. Who is over who? Are the scriptures over the church? Or the church over the scriptures. And people have lost their lives over this verse. And so to me it is a very important verse and a verse that we need to understand thoroughly. Now in these last three verses of chapter 3, Paul is going to address some important things. The purpose statement of this book and the identity of the church itself and the doxology of praise that is to be characteristic of those churches who submit themselves to the Word of God. So this morning we're going to look at verses 14 and 15. When we return for another time, we will look at the doxology of praise in verse 16. Now all of 1 Timothy revolves around this text before us. This text is the theme text, the central hub text, and everything else in the book are like spokes that all connect to this one passage. These verses are just loaded. They're packed. Uh, They're like a volcano ready to erupt all kinds of good doctrine on us. And so we just hope to be swept away as we look at some of the neat things hidden in these verses Now, we've already noticed in chapter 1 that Paul addresses some of the issues facing Timothy at Ephesus. And then in chapter 2, he addresses um, prayer and men's and women's roles. And then in chapter 3, he talks about um, leadership issues and, and qualifications of deacons and women who serve. And then we come to 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 through 16. So if you have your Bible open, you can follow along as I read. Paul says... I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Verse 14 is the front door to the purpose statement of the book found in verse 15. Paul says, I'm writing these things to you. Now, just stop there for a moment. What are these things? These things he's going to say? These things he has said? What are the these things? 
Well, we know that he says these things and defines them as the conduct of the church, how one ought to conduct himself. So, in a specific way, it probably refers to chapter 2 and chapter 3 because both of those chapters address public worship and how the church is to conduct itself. But since Paul is writing this letter all at one time, and he is writing it to Timothy all at one time, I believe it refers to everything in the book, not just the preceding context. All of these things Paul is writing to the church so that the church will know how to conduct itself. Now, Paul says that he is writing these things hoping to come to you before long. Paul was writing to Timothy as he was held up in Macedonia. And when Paul says he is hoping to come to him before long, before long is a term or a phrase that means quickly or speedily or at haste or at once or soon or sooner. Paul wanted to go see Timothy. And you can understand why. Uh, Paul loves Timothy. Timothy is Paul's beloved child in the faith. And here he drops him off at Ephesus. And uh, even though he's equipped him, and even though he's trained him, and even though Timothy knows sound doctrine, man, he just put him into a viper's den. I mean, they were, there were so many false teachers. I mean, it was the hub of paganism. And so all of these people, all of these uh, false teachers were encroaching upon the church. They were attacking Timothy. They were persecuting him. False teachers were creeping in the church. They were teaching things they shouldn't. And Paul wanted to come and wield the sigh of, of apostolic authority and hew them down and get them out of the church. Yet Paul knows he isn't in control of his life. And he knows that his ways are not always God's ways and that he plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. And so he writes. He writes this letter instead of himself coming personally, which he knows he can't do right at the moment. He writes this letter in case I am delayed, verse 15 says. So Paul knew he was not going to get there quickly. It's kind of like when it's rush hour and you're on the freeway and you need to get someplace quickly. You know you're not. I mean, you just can't help it. You see all those cars, and you just realize, I am going to be late. And that's all there is to it. And that's how it was with Paul. You see, as he went around, he was not just idle. It's not that he just went from place to place and said, Don't bother me, I'm the Apostle Paul, I'm trying to get to Timothy. No, he went from place to place, and what did he do? He preached the gospel. And what happened when he preached the gospel? People repented. He called sinners to repent it. He commanded them to repent. And when they did, he didn't say, Oh, be warm and filled. You're saved now. Praise God. I've got to go see Timothy. No. That would be like having a baby and then abandoning it and say, Well, I gave birth to you. Take care of yourself. Paul couldn't do that any more than we could abandon a baby. And so these little children in the faith that kept coming to the Lord, Paul had to stop. That wherever he led them to the Lord, and he had to teach them the fundamentals of the faith. Just like we do when we lead some to the Lord, we are responsible not merely to share the gospel with them and lead them to the Lord, but when they come to the Lord, they were responsible to equip them, to train them how to study their Bible, how to pray, how to be involved in church, just the basic doctrines of the Christian faith. And that's what Paul had to do. And so he knows he's probably going to be delayed. And so he says... 
I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. And from this one verse, we're going to look at three important truths, three truths you need to understand that relate to you as part of this church and part of the overarching church of God. The first is that God has prescribed the way he wants his church to conduct itself. And secondly, that the household of God is the church of the living God, as opposed to the dead gods. And third, that the church's identity and primary function is to be a pillar and support of the truth. Verse 15 says, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Now, though this letter is addressed to Timothy specifically, its content is directed to the entire church. He's not just saying, Timothy, I want you to know this, but don't let anybody know about it. Don't model it in front of anybody. Don't tell anybody, my goodness. No, he is writing to Timothy specifically as Timothy is the leader of the church or one of the leaders of the church. And so he writes to Timothy, knowing Timothy will teach everything in this letter to the church. The NIV New International Version brings out uh, this when they translate the phrase that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves. It is an overarching letter for the entire church of all the ages. It's like when you leave your, your children with the babysitter and then you, know, you sit down with the babysitter before you go have fun and you say, now this is what I want done. Now I want the kids to bed at this time and they can do this. Don't let them do that. If they train, you know, trick you into doing this, just let you know they're trying to trick you. So don't let them do this and you can do this and you can do that. Don't do this, don't do that. Now, after you inform the babysitter... That doesn't mean your children can do anything they want just because you specifically addressed your babysitter. No, the instructions to the babysitter are for the whole household. She is just the point person, the point man, so to speak. And that is how Timothy is. This letter is directed to Timothy, Paul's appointed leader of the church that he left there, his close friend and companion. And he says, listen, Timothy, I'm telling you these things so that the entire church knows how to conduct itself, knowing that Timothy would share this letter and teach them the things in this letter. If you look at the last two verses of 1 Timothy in chapter 6, if you turn there, There's something important that you can't see in the English. In verse 20, Paul says this, O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Now, obviously, when he says this in verse 20, he's saying, Oh, Timothy, that's who the letter's directed at, right? Right. And then at the very end, when he says, Grace be with you, that you there, that last word in the book, is not you singular. That is you 
plural, which tells us this entire letter is not just for Timothy, but is for the entire church, and that Paul intended the entire church to know the content of this book. Now, people, I have had some people come up to me, and they've said this. They've said, well, you know, you know, these truths in this book don't apply to us. Oh, really? Yeah, these are written to Timothy, and these don't have anything to do with us. People, that is a statement from hell. This book is part of the Scriptures. It is part of the Word of God. And all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All of this book is. As a matter of fact, what Moses said and Jesus repeated to Satan in Matthew 4.4, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And people, this is some of what proceeded out of the mouth of God. Now, that does not mean that every single thing in every single book applies literally, but all the scripture and all the principles in all the scripture in every book is for us, especially all of those letters written to the churches and individuals in the churches. I mean, if your argument is that, well, you know, this doesn't apply to us because it was written to somebody that wasn't us, well, then nothing would apply. Because every single book in the Bible is written to someone or some persons in some other situation, in some other era, in some other time, in some other place. The Bible is God's code of conduct for the church. And as a church, this is what we look at to find out what we're supposed to be doing. I mean, if you aren't going to come to the Bible and find out what you're supposed to be doing, then where do you go? You go to man-made religion. You see, God is the creator, and God created us. But the church is even more special than just God being creator, and this is why. The church is not only owned by God because God created us, but because God purchased us. Through the precious blood of his son, he owns us by right of creation and by right of redemption. And this is why Paul says to the Corinthians this, do you not know that you are not your own and that you have been bought with a price? They were engaging in fornication and idolatry and immorality and adultery. And he says, hey, what are you doing? You can't do this. You have been bought with a price. You are not your own. Does the owner of a business have the right to tell his employees what he wants them to do? Of course. Does a father have right over his children to tell them what they are to do? Of course. Well, God owns the church. And he has the right to tell the church what to do. And he is the only one who has the right to tell the church what to do. You see, you may be part of this church, and you may talk about this being your church, but technically speaking, this is not your church. This is Jesus Christ's church. He owns this church. 
He bought this church. He was given this church from God. And you may have given to help pay for this building, but this building is not the church. This building is a place where the church meets. And you can have a claim to that, but this is not your church. This is God's church. And all of us who are truly saved, who have repented of our sins, who have given our life to Christ, we are members of this church. And you are not just part of this church when you're sitting here. You're part of this church when you're at work, when you're driving around, when you're sitting at home. You are the church of the living God. And that is who you are. When you buy yourself a car, you own it. You get to drive it. You get to take care of it. You get to steer it any way you want. It's your car. You have control. Well, in the same way, this is Christ's church. He owns it. He bought it. And he gets to steer it any way he wants. And it's not up to us or a privilege of ours to tell God where he needs to steer his church. He said Christ, that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. He's the driver, the Bible is the roadmap, and heaven is the destination. Now we can fall into the error of thinking that when this is our church, that we get to kind of somehow have a say of where this church should go. Well, in a small way, that's true. I mean, once we come to the scriptures and we submit to the scriptures, we have freedom there. But we don't get to put ourselves above the scriptures. Most churches today run by committee, by the ideas of men, by the latest uh, survey books. They go to the Christian bookstore and find out what's working in other churches. Somebody does something in some church, tries some program, it works really great in their church, and so they write a book about it. And then all these other people go down and they buy the book, and then they have that book. And then they have that book, and... They think, well, you know, we need to do this thing too. And so then they try and do it in their church. And pretty soon the blind are leading the blind and they're both falling off the cliff of error and being dashed to pieces on the wisdom of humans who are sin-cursed and fallible. No, the scriptures tell us what we are to do. 2 Peter 1.3 says, Seeing his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And then Peter goes on to say that even though he had some incredible experiences, the church does well if it pays attention to the more sure word of God. Let's say you wanted to start a ministry. Maybe... It was related to worship or teaching or evangelism. You want to start a ministry in the church. Now, how do you do that? I mean, how do you start a ministry? I mean, do you just sit down and just kind of think about it and just conjure something up and think, let's do it. We'll just organize it this way and do it this way and we'll make it happen this way. That's how most churches do it. People get an idea and they go for the idea. That's not how we do ministry. How we do ministry is this. Let's say you want to do some sort of uh, visitation ministry. I want to do a visitation ministry. Okay, then do a visitation ministry. But first, 
I want you to look in the scriptures. I want you to study every single passage you can find in the scriptures that relate to visitation. When people were visited or anything the Bible says about being equipped to go visit or whatever. You go to the word of God. You become saturated in the word of God. You find the principles in the word of God. And then you build your ministry based off of the word of God. Because God is the one who tells the church what to do. We don't just decide to do something and then try and tack on a few verses you know, and hope it works. Every ministry needs to submit to the scriptures. Then the word of God tells us and informs us. It consults us so that we know that, yes, we are doing this. And this is why from the word of God. And so right now, let me just ask you this. You know, you're involved in a ministry. and We all should be involved in a ministry since we're all given gifts and we're all called to serve in the body. So let's just say this. You have a ministry you're involved in right now. Now, what is the biblical basis of your ministry? I mean, what are the key texts that relate to the ministry you're doing? I mean, if you go through the New Testament or whatever, I mean, do you find passages that define your ministry? That your ministry is based on? This is critical. It's critical. Because what happens is, is we get so lulled into pragmatism that pretty soon we start doing things and we never come back to the scriptures to find out what God says we need to be doing in his word. We always go to the scriptures first and let the scriptures inform our ministry. And then, after we're informed, then we can have freedom to do whatever in the bounds of what the scriptures say, but never outside of it. Secondly, we learn from this text that the household of God is the church of the living God. Paul gives us two synonyms for the word church, household of God and church of the living God. The household is a metaphor. It's used to describe a dwelling, a residence. It's talking about this intimate relationship that the church has. We are the household of God. And just like you know your household better than other households, you know what goes on in your household because that's where you live. So God has a household and it is the church. And he dwells in the church, not just because he's omnipresent, but because he dwells in each one of you. I mean, you need to think about that before you go sinning, that God is there. He's not only outside, he's inside. He is in you. Listen to some of these scriptures. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you fail the test. Jesus is in you, if you are a true believer. Jesus and the Father are also in us. John 14, 23 says, Jesus answering, talk to his disciples, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we, Jesus and the Father, will come to him and make our abode with him. The Father is in you. In Romans 8, 9, Speaking of the Spirit, it says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. 
In 2 Corinthians 6, 16, just speaks of God in general. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will dwell in them. You have God in you. You are the church. You are the temple. Each one of us is like a brick in God's temple. So all true believers have God resident within them. And this is why when we come together for corporate worship, it's extra special. You can't get what you get here on the radio, listening to a tape or watching TV. This is the corporate body of believers where we all have different gifts and we all have abilities to minister to each other. And we're all here to minister to one another and encourage one another to love and good deeds. And that's what the church is all about. God is the father of his household. And the household is supposed to please God by submitting to God's code of conduct. Then Paul defines, notice what the text says, that this household of God is the church of the living God. The term living God was an important term in the Old Testament because it described the living God as opposed to idols. You just look through the Old Testament text where it appears and you find out it's used in contrast to people who worship idols. Do you remember what happened when, uh, when uh, David in 1 Samuel 17, when he's, um, he hears Goliath up there who's an idol worshiper, uh, uh, you know, cursing Israel. He says this in 1 Samuel 17, 26, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine who taunts the armies of Of the living God. And what David was saying is, is, guys, what's going on? I mean, we are the army of the living God. They are the army of the dead gods. Why are you cowering back? Or why are you, why are you fearful that they're going to have victory over us when we have The living God, the only living God. And he was incensed and he went through there with his stone and slings and took him out, chopped his head off. It was an R-rated scene. (laughs) All other gods are dead gods and the only living God is the God that is the God of this church. And the God of every other church. He is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. The source of life. The King of kings. The Lord of lords. And the judge of the living and the dead. And you need to remember that Paul is writing to Timothy. And Timothy is at Ephesus. And and Ephesus was just a bastion of idolatry. I mean there were as many idols as there is cars on the freeway. There was just idols everywhere. And Paul's telling Timothy, Timothy, you got the household of God there. You you, you are the church, the church of the living God, Timothy. Don't be cowering down to these guys who are attacking you. You are serving the living God. That's his whole point. He wanted to make sure that Timothy wasn't caving in, so he says, this is the church of the living God. And then this leads us to verse 15, where we discover the identity of the church. 
The identity of the church tells us where God's code of conduct is to be found. It tells us the primary function and responsibility of his household and his church, the church that he is the living God over. Paul says that God's household and the church of the living God is the pillar and support of the truth. Paul uses two terms here. Pillar, which is a column, a sphere. We all know what a pillar is. And what do pillars do? They hold up things. They support things. They elevate things from a lower to a higher position. All of us as the church are to be pillars of the truth. Not only that, he says, we are to be supports. And this word is less clear. It's the only place it appears in the New Testament. It means foundation or bulwark or support. It could even refer to the ground or bedrock under which you know you would set a foundation. But both pillar and support clearly are words that go underneath something else to support it, hold it steady, and lift it up. Now, notice what the text does not say. It does not say the church is the truth, or the church is the giver of the truth, or the church is alongside the truth, or over the truth. It says the church is under the truth. The church is the pillar and support placing itself under the authority of the Word of God. And this, as mentioned earlier, was one of the great points of battle in the Reformation. Because the whole issue focused on this. Who gets to have say? Does the Word of God have say, ultimate say, or does the church have ultimate say? Who gets to decide? Who gets to to be a boss? That was the whole issue that the Reformation was fought on. And so this battle was waging. And if you've ever had talked to Roman... See, I grew up Roman Catholic, and most Roman Catholics don't know what they even believe. But the ones who do know what they believe and who have studied Roman Catholic dogma and doctrine a little bit, when you begin to talk with them, it becomes very frustrating if you don't understand where they're coming from. You see, you want to talk to them about what the Bible says, and they keep quoting this person, or this person, or this person, or this person. And you keep saying, but the Bible says, but the Bible says, and they keep talking about this, and that, and Chrysostom, and Augustine, and Jerome. And you're thinking, why don't you just stick to the text there? Well, I'll tell you why. And this will save you much grief. They believe the Bible is just one small book in the inspired writings of the church. This one. One Catholic theologian said, I have many books in my library. The Bible is one of them. That's all. You see, the Catholic Church actually has five sources of divine revelation. And this is what the Reformers were kicking against. Let me just give you to them quickly. The first, they believed that the Apocrypha, those were these ancient books, these religious books written in the intertestamental period before when the Old Testament ended, before the New Testament books began. These books of Apocrypha, they have all these strange things, Bell and the Dragon and all kinds of stuff. And they, the church, 
at the time of the Reformation, now not before, before the Apocrypha was just seen to be good religious writings. But what happened is, is when the Reformers got the Bible into the hands of the people, and the people said, hey, where's, you know, where's purgatory in here? Show me this in my Bible. Then the Catholic Church had a dilemma. Because it's not in the Bible. And so what they did is they said, well, we are canonizing the Apocrypha, and the Apocrypha is now Scripture. As if the church has the authority to inspire something. Because they needed more materials to draw their doctrines from. The Apocrypha was a response, a reaction to the Reformers' doctrine of sola scriptura. The doctrine which says that the scriptures alone are totally sufficient and authoritative for all matters of faith and practice and doctrine within the church. Secondly, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that divine authority is to be found in the traditions of the Roman Catholic Church and classify their traditions as the Word of God. So when you read the, uh, the writings of Jerome, let's say, that's authoritative. It's divinely authoritative. Thirdly, Roman Catholic Church believes that divine authority is given to the Pope when he speaks ex cathedra or in matters of uh, when he's addressing the whole church on uh, doctrinal matters, official matters. So all the papal bulls and all the, the statements of the Pope, which in and of themselves contradict themselves throughout the ages. Uh, I think there's over 40 volumes of papal bulls. They are all divine Inspired, according to the Catholic Church. Fourth, the Roman Catholic Church also believes that when its bishops speak in conjunction to the traditions of the church or the writings of the Pope or the statements of the Pope, that they too are inspired. And fifth and finally, the Roman Catholic Church believes that their interpretation is the only legitimate interpretation and that we, in the words of the Catholic Church, are unintelligent swine. And that to give the Bible to laymen is to cause them to trample it underfoot. God's word is to have all say in matters of faith and practice. And as soon as you begin to take man's words and man's wisdom and supplant the word of God, that's a form of blasphemy. You cannot add to the word of God, nor can you subtract from it. Deuteronomy 12.32 says, Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. In Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, I remember this verse. This, was, uh, this, this verse was the one attached to infant baptism in the first edition of the MacArthur Study Bible, and no one knows how it got in there. No one fessed up to it. But uh, Proverbs 35 and 6 says, Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words or he will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. In the last book of the Bible written by the Apostle John about the last days of the second coming in the last chapter, and the second to last Subject there in verses 18 and 19, he says this, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life, from the holy city, which are written in this book. Soon as people start adding to the scriptures, which is often characteristic of the cults, that's scary. That is scary business. 
That is to trample holy things underfoot. As soon as you add to the Bible, it's like taking a dagger and stabbing the scriptures. It is like running the Bible through a shredder. It is like diluting it. It is like alloying the golden, precious truths of God's word with iron. And it's wrong. And that's what the Catholic Church had done. And that's why the Reformers got the Bible back into the hands of the common lay people who, when they read the Bible, were transformed, were saved, and departed from the Catholic Church. And that's where all the Protestant denominations came from. Now, the text before us in 1 Timothy 3.15 was the Hill text. And we need to come back to the Bible as the church. And we need to realize that men like William Tyndale, who also wrote an English translation of the Bible, men like him died. They died torturous deaths to make sure you and I could have a copy of the Word of God. Most churches are catering to men, not God. They desire to please men, not God. But you can't be a man-pleaser and a God-pleaser too. You can't have people-centered religion and God-centered religion. The scriptures make this perfectly clear. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'll just show you two texts. When we come to the scriptures, we need to understand that the scriptures dictate what we need to do. And that our goal in here is not pleasing me, it's not pleasing somebody else, it's pleasing God. Now, if you're pleasing God, then that's what matters. Because, see, sometimes when you, you please God, men hate you for it. As a matter of fact, the scriptures promise it. So if you're going by what people think, then you miss the whole point. You become man-centered. Look at First Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we ran away because we were scared. We realized that we were hurting people's feelings. Is that what he says? We realized we needed to change the message because it was making people feel bad. No, this is what he says. We had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved to God and been entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart, not as pleasing men. We need to get get back to God-pleasing ministry. Everything needs to be looked at from the scriptures so we can please God because this is his book and this is the code that he has given us to conduct ourselves and we need to uphold this truth as the pillar and supports that God has made us. That's what we are. It's not what we're going to be. It's what we are. It's just whether we're lousy pillars or not. Paul, when confronting the Galatians for accepting a false gospel, said this to them in Galatians 1.10. Now, this is after he told them they were doubly cursed. He said in Galatians 1.10, For I am now seeking the favor of men or of God. Or am I striving to please men? 
Now listen to this. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bond servant of Christ. So since we are the pillar and support of the truth, the question remains, how do we fulfill our purpose or identity? And these are the things I'm just going to give you in closing. The first way we fulfill our purpose of being a pillar in support of the truth is by studying the word diligently and handling it accurately. 2 Timothy 2.15 is a verse you can put by that. Studying diligently, handling accurately so we are approved to God. Secondly, we uphold the truth and our pillars under the truth when we meditate on God's word and obey it. Like Joshua said, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night so that you will be careful to do all that is written in it. For then... It will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Also, by hiding it in your heart and treasuring it in your heart. Psalm 119.11. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Also, by defending it. Philippians 1.16, where Paul talks about his ministry being a ministry of defense, defending the truth. The men's retreat, I preached on guarding the truth from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. We also uphold the truth and our pillars of the truth when we proclaim God's word to the lost, like Matthew 28, 19 and 20 says. Dave preached on that not too long ago. When we share God's word, when we share the gospel with people, with boldness, even amid much opposition... We just do it because it's right, because it's what God uses to save people. It's the only thing God uses to save people. And finally, by living the truth in such a way that men can see our transformed and holy lives. That is the great power of the gospel. You can tell people how great God is. But your words will have great impact when you live what God's word is. Colossians 3, 12 through 17. So people, when we come to this text, we need to realize this. God is a God who has written down in the scriptures what he wants us to do. We need to look at his truth before doing anything examine it carefully and submit ourselves to the conduct he has called us all to because we are his household and he's the father and we are his children. He is the living God, not the dead God, which has all kinds of implications we didn't even mention. And that as the church, each individual of us, God has told us we are pillars in support of the truth. So let's get under it. Let's pray. Father, we come before you thankful that this text is in your word, a text which is convicting, a text which is encouraging. Father, how messed up the church would be if it was all to be run by the opinions of men. Father, we would be like ships without rudders and cars without steering wheels if...
we didn't have your word written down for us to study and know and submit to. Father, I pray for Calvary Bible Church, and I pray for all the other churches who claim your name. Father, we would come back to your word, that we would come back to you. Father, we would hear your voice as we read the scriptures, and that, Father, we would examine everything carefully that we do so that we follow your code of conduct, which you have written down for us. Help us to lift high your truth in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a great day.